Hey, bro. It's been a while since we've done a recording session. What have you been up to? Yeah, like over a month, huh? Well, as you know, had a baby. Yeah. She's doing well. Awesome. Things are good there. So that was cool. Had a baby. Had cancer. Got it cut out of me. Wait, what? Yeah. Back up? <laughs> yep, yep. And then, uh, I don't know, I drink some water and I'm feeling like something's eating the back of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, everybody? <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Watch If You Dare. We ended our mini hiatus because we actually put out our episode with the great Colin Bunn recently. That kind of officially ended our hiatus. Peek behind the curtain, this is our uh, first episode back actually recording because we banked that episode uh, in preparation for my baby. What we didn't expect was me getting cancer in my kidney uh my right kidney to be oops <laughs> specific yeah but listeners fret not so part of the reason why we were on a hiatus through may was so i could address this and see how severe it was and everything thankfully it seems like it was caught early the doctors involved were all great i uh, had a surgical urologist use a literal robot spider surgery machine to cut the tumor out of my right kidney and uh, he was able to actually spare uh, the rest of my right kidney so i have one one and a half kidneys still and i am like on week two and a half three of recovery from the surgery and feeling great the biopsy it was very good of the tumor it was cancerous but they like i said they think they caught it really early so we decided that uh it's time to come back to watch if you dare and get the ball rolling on this Oh, so if you kind of want a mini horror recommendation, like, I'm not kidding when I say, like, a surgeon-assisted robot machine cut out this tumor. If you want sort of, like, a horrific look at something, search the Da Vinci surgical system and watch it operate on YouTube. It's pretty badass, but it's also pretty, like, oh, God, I don't want that thing inside of me. But wait, yeah, yes, I do. <laughs> it looks like a spider bot. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's that's what they use to cut out the tumor. But um, what have you been up to this, May? Nothing that compares to that at all uh heather and i are both fully back at work because you know the world has just decided that the pandemic is done and we got a new puppy but you know that's about it but yeah so i guess with that listeners uh we are watching dare a horror movie podcast with myself the coward derek and my movie monster boy co-host aaron um in which we watch horror movies across all ages and genres uh and discuss fears phobias associated and just how scary these movies are for for cowards like myself and just how relevant they are to the horror community for people like Aaron who are horror junkies with that it's been a minute we can go into our recommendations section I believe and kind of recommend other horror that is not related to the movie we're going to discuss today be it um, other horror movies TV shows books video games comics etc and we recommend them to each other and hopefully you our listeners hear something that we can recommend to you that you want to go check out so with that Aaron have you been I'm sure I'm absolutely positive over a month that you've consumed a fuck ton of horror so like what would you want to bring up today yes i have watched an insane amount of stuff since i've had the time not editing but i have also been commuting again fully for work so that's also been eating up a giant chunk of my life once again so i didn't want to talk about things that i had watched like let's say you know a month ago and then try to give you my thoughts on it now nothing was good enough to like hold in your head for that long well the problem is I've watched so much stuff that I can't remember what I have and haven't seen at this point, what I haven't haven't talked about without going and listening to old episodes. Because I've also just been getting movies in little by little to the house and watching.
watching them. So it's stuff like, you know, I got Vinegar Syndrome's 4K of Six String Samurai, which is a really silly fucking movie that is borderline horror adjacent. It's the future apocalypse hellscape of America where the Russians bombed us in the 50s and it's just complete wasteland. And a guy who's kind of like Buddy Holly with a samurai sword is going to Las Vegas to take the crown after Elvis, who was the king, literally died. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's just him and this little mute kid, very like, you know, lone wolf and cub Mandalorian style, like roaming the wastelands and taking out all these baddies. By the way, the like literal manifestation of death, who is like all about death metal, is stalking him, trying to take him out. It is a silly movie, but it's one that my brothers and I rented all the fucking time from our little local video store and watched constantly. And it's one that kind of sort of got me interested in getting into movies as a thing. What year again did this movie come out? Oh, this was like 97, 98. Wow, I, this sounded like more of an 80s movie the way you were describing. Well, that premise is fantastic, by the way. Yeah, it's real silly, but it's a lot of fun. Um, they run into like cannibal families, hazmat monsters and mutants and all these other road bumps along the way. It sounds a little bit more like a lighthearted take on like the comic coffin bound that we brought up in the past a little bit yeah it's definitely got kind of the mad maxi like everything is blasted and dirty and falling apart right. kind of vibes to it but yeah it's not nearly as dark there's literally scenes where people are getting like punched and kicked and it's making like looney tune noises <laughs> but yeah that was such a wild pick for vinegar syndrome to do for their halfway to black friday sale and that's one that i never thought would see the light of day ever again so for them to completely jump blu-ray and go straight to 4k with this movie that was bananas so yeah that was yeah. an instant buy for me so as far as other stuff i i've watched in prep for the movie that we're discussing this week which is the bay um which spoiler alert i guess deals with an infestation of crustaceans murdering people on a uh water bound area uh i decided to watch two other movies in which people are being murdered by crustacean-like creatures under the water. Uh, the first is Underwater from 2020, which I'm just now <laughs> catching up with. Aptly named. Yeah. yeah. This was like one of the very last theatrical movies that came out before everything shut down. It was directed by William Eubank, who did The Signal, and it stars Kristen Stewart, Vincent Cassell, who is my pipe dream choice to play Doctor Doom, John Gallagher Jr. from 10 Cloverfield Lane, Jessica Henwick, Mamadou Athi and the now canceled TJ Miller, which kind of cracked me up because I saw like, wait, TJ Miller's in this? How is he getting work anymore? Didn't he get like super canceled? And then I had to look it up and I saw, oh, this movie was made three, four years ago and just sat on a shelf and just didn't get released at all for a while. So I, I was very intrigued by that because honestly, this movie was pretty fucking good. Production wise, it looks very expensive and I don't think the budget was that high at the end of the day but it looks like a very expensive movie it's about a group of people who are working at a drilling platform at the bottom of the Mariana Trench um, which is like the deepest known point in the ocean and then something happens dot 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 the station starts falling apart and it's this group of survivors and then oops 
turns out there's some kind of dot 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 monster or monsters. So I know this might be spoiling something. Please tell me Vincent Cassell is the bad guy. Like winds up being the, the human bad guy. No. Uh, wow. Surprisingly, okay. there are no human villains in this movie. Okay. There's none of okay. that kind of conflict. I was kind of thinking like he goes insane and be like, we must feed this old god. We must like, or yeah, do no. something like baddie like that. That was one thing that was surprising is usually in these movies, there's always one human villain. There's always like the one corporate asshole who has like ulterior motives or like you said, somebody who just like goes full crazy and becomes a monkey wrench in the machine. But surprisingly, there was none of that. It was literally just this group of people who were all just like, fuck, 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 we're running out of oxygen. We got to get to like where these other escape pods are. But where it does go ultimately is very intriguing. That's all I'll say. I mean, at this point, the movie's been out for a year and a half. So most people have probably had it spoiled for them. But it's definitely worth checking out. By the time this comes out, it might not be on HBO Max anymore. It might be on a different streaming service. But that's definitely worth checking out. I also rewatched Deep Star 6 for the first time since I was a kid. 1989, directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who's kind of mostly known for the Friday the 13th franchise. This is also a group of people on a drilling platform deep under the ocean who suddenly everything starts falling apart because dot 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 giant crustacean creature. It's fun. There's a lot of fun character actors in it, and the creature effects are really fucking cool. Like, the actual crustacean monster thing and some of the kills are pretty rad just biting people in half stuff like that but it's kind of mind-boggling because this movie came out in 89 which is the same exact year that James Cameron put out the abyss and there is a like literal like Mariana's trench worth of fucking difference between those two in terms of quality so it's it's bananas to think that those movies came out in the same year but I guess you kind of have the same thing with looking at like full moon movies from you know 1990 one and thinking oh well Terminator 2 came out the same year I mean it's kind of unfair I guess to compare absolute top of the line special effects and visual effects and for that like, time yeah filmmaking for that time with barely scraping by like budget with no actual known people in it except like Miguel Ferrer right? right so like I said maybe that's unfair all said and done but it's too hard to ignore because they're both very close to being the same movie so anyway yeah I I watched those two water-based crustacean killer movies <laughs> um, just for shits yeah. because we were going to be covering this. And then I also, in prep for watching the new Conjuring movie, I watched all three of the Annabelle movies, which I have only seen chunks of the first one, but I have never seen the two sequels. And I had heard that the two sequels, honestly, are better. And I would agree with that. The first one, from what I've read, is a bit of a mess. Yeah, because... Okay, so I guess spoilers for Annabelle. The movie's been out since 2014. Deal with it. Directed by John Leonetti. It kind of is a mess in terms of, oh, well, the doll is possessed by the spirit of this girl who was, like, into the occult. And it was, at one point in time, her favorite doll and her parents next door got murdered and blah, blah, blah. So, like, her soul is now in the doll. But then, like, later in the movie, it's like, no, no, no. There's just actually a demon demon controlling the doll as a conduit. So, like, so wait, which is it? 
It doesn't <laughs> seem to kind of clearly make up its mind about what it's doing. And I would say, too, the problem that all three of these have is there are just so many long stretches where it's just people wandering around slowly, no audio, and then all of a sudden, like, something loud, jump scary kind of happens. But I feel like if just some of that had been tightened up, these movies could have been a little more engaging at the end of the day. The first sequel, Creation, which came out in 2017, was directed by David Sanders. Sandberg, the guy who did Lights Out and Shazam. And it's certainly better. It's a prequel, so you're kind of getting the, like, oh, this is how the doll was created. And same thing, it kind of seems to negate the entire first movie in terms of the doll's origin and how it got to be, you know, possessed and all this. But then it kind of wraps back around by the end. It's more about this group of orphan girls kind of all staying at this couple's house, and you find out that the couple's daughter died tragically, and, you know, the doll is there, and dot, dot, dot. It's it's a little more fun. It's definitely more gory. There's some wild gore shit in that movie, but it's still like a lot of little kids in peril, I guess, which can be kind of slow and kind of repetitive. Like there's only so many times that you can like have a little girl creeping around a dark place with, you know, a candle and then something loud happens and she gets drug away, right? Come Home, in my opinion, is my favorite. That's the third one that came out in 2019. It was directed by Gary Dauberman, who actually wrote the first one. He also wrote some of the other Conjuring Universe stuff. Like, I think he wrote The Nun, and he did the It movies that came out a couple of years ago. He directs this one, and this is actually getting the Warrens involved, where they get a hold of the doll. It's in their, like, room full of haunted, cursed shit, and so it's mostly following their daughter and her friends, and they accidentally kind of wake everything in the cursed objects room up and so now you have you know this haunted bride dress and you have a werewolf and you've got a like haunted samurai <laughs> Wait, outfit and like a tv that shows you what's gonna happen to you 15 seconds before it happens there's all these like cursed objects that they're having to deal with now in this house so it definitely becomes so it, more fun. <laughs> like control kind of yeah yeah <laughs> yeah just it kind of just becomes supernatural control yeah, yeah. so you know i I don't regret watching any of those three movies, but they sag in places where it's just a lot of wandering around in the quiet waiting for a jump scare to happen. You know, I think the plot could have been a little deeper in some of them, and certainly the, like, lore of the movies could have been maybe figured out a little bit better. But, you know, I think they are generally well-made movies. Like, they are studio movies, so they're going to have money behind them. They are going to be kind of nice to look at for the most part and gloss and they're full of interesting actors and lots of good production design and that kind of thing. So they're enjoyable, certainly. But it's a trilogy that I do think gets better as they go, in my opinion. You know, if, if you wanted to maybe skip the first one and go straight to the sequels, have fun, sure, you know. But, yeah. you know, they're not bad overall. I've seen much worse. The thing that always makes me laugh is what it's based off of is like a possessed Raggedy Ann doll in reality. Oh, totally. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But like the movie. Movie Annabelle is in no, in no fucking universe. way in what God's a fucking kid name be like, would 
gets anyone the doll be I like, want. this is a great doll that doesn't scare yeah. the living shit out of me. So just kind of to clear this in my own head, there's the three Conjuring movies with The Devil Made Me Do It. Yeah. The third one just coming out. You have the three Annabelle movies. And then was there a seventh or eighth movie? You uh, have The, the Nun Curse of... and Curse of La Llorona. Uh, and isn't there another creature that they're making? Like the Top Hat Man or something? I don't know. There's been like so many spinoff ideas for that entire universe. And, you know, who knows where it's going to go now at this point? Because I think this might definitively be the last one with the Warrens in it. Which that's generally an issue I have with that entire universe is it's difficult for me to, like, really buy into what the movie's trying to do in terms of turning them into, like, essentially, like, spiritual superheroes. Yeah. Because in real life, they were complete fucking frauds and they were con artists and they kind of fucked up a lot of people's lives and so it's hard for me to like feel any actual sympathy for the characters that are on screen knowing that that's kind of not at all what they were in real life but you know I guess if that's how that is and you kind of have to have some reservations about any time that you see quote unquote real life people portrayed on the screen you know so that's a roadblock that like I have to jump over personally with those movies but generally speaking I mean they're fun I I would say they're fun to go see like in a theater with a crowd and I kind of hate that I didn't go see the two Annabelle sequels while they were in theaters I just kind of breezed past them and figured okay I'd catch them later but that last one especially I wish I could have seen like on the big screen yeah so those are all the movies that I want to talk about right now and then I've got two comics that I'll mention real quick one is Survivor's Club from 2015 this is a nine issue series from Vertigo Comics written by Lauren Bukes and Dale Halverson with art by Ryan Kelly. It is a group of people who kind of all seem to have their own unique hauntings or possessions or powers yeah. or traumas that they're all trying to get past and deal with. While you are talking about this, I looked up artwork and stuff. I totally did read this too way back when it came out. Listeners, I read a lot of comics and sometimes I, I forget some things I read, but yes, I, I read this too. It is a good comic, especially for horror. Yeah, it kind of takes a ton of horror tropes and throws them all at the wall with all these different characters. Like, one of them comes from, like, a Amityville kind of past where, you know, supposedly he was possessed when he was a kid and it ruined his family. Yeah, think all the supernatural horror, like, classic tropes, and each kid is, like, a different version of that or their their past was, because, like, then there's the twins where, like, one of them might be a living doll. Yeah, you don't realize that there's two of them. Yeah. Right. There's like the Japanese girl who has basically the ring girl following her, but the ring is like girl is her aunt. So that ghost protects her, but it's totally just the girl from the ring. Yeah. And it just shoots up out of nowhere sometimes and will randomly murder people. But yeah, it's like all of them getting together to face their traumas and figure out how to get rid of them once and for all. But they figure out that there is something specific that links all of them together. And this one woman in the group kind of figures at least that part of it out and she's the one that pulls all these disparate people together so that was definitely a fun series the other one i'll mention is a 2018 series written by garth ennis from aftershock comics called a walk through hell artwork by goren suzuka that was interesting maybe a little bit too long and i say too long i think it's only 
10 or 12 issues, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I only read the first issue, but I'm not sure how long it is. You're not always sure what's happening. You're not always sure what you're looking at. Lots and lots and lots and lots of dialogue. And not all of it seems to quite come together necessarily. But I think it's interesting because it's... From 2018, and Ennis, you know, you can take or leave Ennis. I can do Ennis in spoonfuls. But there is a lot of commentary in it just around how culture in America has changed before and after the Trump election. It's these two FBI agents who go to investigate this weird occurrence in like a a dockyard in this warehouse and then once they go in it kind of becomes this crazy limbo space where they're stuck and they can't quite get out and it seems to be kind of like a purgatory space where they're just stuck so there's lots of flashbacks to like the two or three years prior and the case that they were investigating that kind of leads into all of this and it goes from there but there's a lot of interesting commentary on the world and the function of law enforcement and the FBI and how all of that functioned prior to the Trump election and how so many like tensions were kind of under the surface and they the lid was still kind of on the pot but how after trump being elected it just became a free-for-all of the worst of everybody can kind of come out you know everything is just kind of completely unapologetic you know we're this is just how things are going to be now yeah and just them processing that and dealing with that you know the two main characters one is a woman the other is a queer Asian man. And so it's mostly the two of them dealing with like, yeah, we generally kept our mouths shut and had to deal with our shit, you know, in the FBI, but then like, suddenly this door was opened and you learned all the terrible things about your co-workers and how they really felt about you and what their opinions of, you know, me as a person really are. And a, a lot of that, a lot of that frustration, a lot of that anger kind of fuels the story. And it kind of curls back around into this, what are we actually fighting against what are we actually pushing back on what do we actually need to be like putting our energy toward what is the actual root cause of all of this so it's it's an interesting story and and it's one of the things that i've read of ennis that i think i genuinely liked although i have some reservations about it the artwork is fantastic the artwork is really really solid so it is bleak it is dark it is ennis's brand of like hyper violence (laughs) hyper violence but also just his very what's the word i'm looking for bleak defeatist nihilistic like it's just that viewpoint of his is there any of his like almost arguably childish black comedy in it yeah i mean there's a lot of that kind of so there's a lot of just jokes that are kind of like like, yeah, okay, sure, I see what you're trying to do here, but it's not that funny. And that's kind of where my reservations with the story come, is I think when he's got his good writing dialed in, it's very good, but then the rest yeah. of the time it's just eye-rolly Ennis that I personally am not a huge fan of. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. All right, so kind of quick aside, and this might lose us a few listeners, because there are a lot of people who like Ennis, a lot of comic writers, and a lot of them are horror fans even, but when Ennis is like on his like eye-rolly, hyper-violence, hyper-sex violence even. He does stuff that I'm kind of surprised he doesn't catch shit for in the same way that other writers do, like Mark Millar, for instance.
Lions. I've always tried to wonder, like, where does he get the pass? And I guess it's in context. Like, everyone just knows that when you're reading Garth Ennis, that kind of stuff isn't necessarily for the sake of violence, although it, to me it feels like it sometimes, and that there's always a different meaning or a different purpose behind his writing. And when it works, it really does work. To this day, the, like, best representation of the Punisher, speaking of all the shit going on in, like, post-Trump America and, like, the Punisher symbol being used by the wrong type of people who don't understand what the character is actually about. Ennis's take on the Punisher is probably the best I've read, yeah. period. So, like, when he's on, he's really on. But, yeah, I, I'm very lukewarm on Ennis myself, and that's kind of a hot take when it comes to people who like comic books because he is kind of regarded as just one of those great writers. So, I don't know if that's, like, kind of the same reasons that you're kind of also lukewarm on him. I mean, he's one of those writers that he's so hyper serious about everything that anytime that he tries to inject humor it doesn't work for me and that's certainly like a chunk of this story i think there's also a chunk of the story that's really trying hard to be preachy i think that's fine to a degree but maybe keep that in line with the story a little bit more i don't know the more i sit with it i think the more i find it interesting and the nitpicks that i have kind of go out the window but overall, like, I would definitely recommend checking it out if you can get your hands on it. The artwork is fantastic. It's a very creepy, interesting, gets more intense and complex as it goes horror story. It's definitely a page turner. You can certainly burn through it. I read it pretty quick because it is compelling and you're just kind of tied into like, okay, where is this going? What's about to happen? Where is this leading to? And it, it does kind of have a propulsion that keeps you reading. So I would say definitely give it a try and see what you think. But yeah, beyond that, that's all I've got for this week at least. Cool. I mean, obviously between the surgery and recovery and all that I and like just because we haven't recorded in so long I have a bunch of stuff but I'll, I'll only tackle a few and save the rest for future episodes but one of the things kind of since you ended with comics I'll lead off with comics and this is kind of just a return recommendation because I brought this up probably on two or three episodes but I wanted to just kind of update my recommendation on this but I got caught up on something is killing the children uh, which is an ongoing comic under boom that uh, James Tinian the fourth has been writing I'm not going to spend too much time in the premise just because like I've talked about it in past episodes but basically random like children around this town called Archer's Peak just go missing and show up dead and this weird woman with like these weird almost glowing eyes named Erica Slaughter shows up claiming to be like a monster hunter and it goes from there. Issue 15 ended the first story arc yeah. it was a long story but not that it was slowly paced or anything like speaking of page turner like it's good yeah. something is killing the children it is really fucking good issue 15 kind of wrapped up the first story arc and issue 16 started the new story arc and without giving away spoilers issue 16 is actually going back and exploring Erica's past because you kind of find out through these issues that she's not the only monster hunter and that there might even be like the society of monster hunters that have been around for ever kind of protecting the world from the existence of monsters but they're not quite heroes either um they they kind of do for the greater good kind of attitude like yeah. willing to sacrifice innocent people kind of style and issue 16 looks like how Erica was 
is basically drafted into their organization and goes through kind of her childhood and her training as a monster hunter. But issue 15 kind of wraps up her story arc of the hunt in Archer's Peak, which the reason why I'm bringing this up again as recommendations, those final issues of the first arc were so fucking good. They were bloody. They were creepy. They were action packed even. I think there are two trades out right now for something is killing the children. Don't try and get the individual issues because unfortunately, because this has been such like a sought after comic, the issues are stupid expensive on eBay right now. Yeah. Individual first print issues. The third printing of the first issue I saw was like listed for over a hundred bucks. They're too expensive. So just go and grab volume one and two. Volume one covers issues one through five and volume two covers issues six through 10. And I guarantee you volume three is right around the corner and will collect the last few issues of the first story arc and right now like they just started the the second story arc where it's her past and everything but really good fucking one of the best horror comics probably the best one i've read since harrow county going back to our buddy cullen bun it's been my favorite one since harrow county so check that out the other thing that i wanted to touch on that i know we've talked about more than once in the past So during one of my first days home, when I was still recovering, I was in a lot of pain. I couldn't really move around too, too much. I decided to finally sit down and watch What We Do in the Shadows, the movie, because I love the TV show so much. Oh, you didn't tell me this. Yeah. So I decided to just hop on YouTube because I couldn't find it on any of the streaming sites that I have access to. So I just decided to rent it on YouTube and I watched it there. For those of you who don't know, What We Do in the Shadows, the movie, was a 2014 New Zealand mockumentary comedy, horror, horror comedy, more of a horror comedy, written and directed by uh, both Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi, who is now like wrapped up in all things Marvel. But it basically is just a film crew following a New Zealand nest of vampires, four vampires to be exact, and Taika and Jermaine actually play two of the vampires. The thing that I love is that their fourth roommate is like this 3,000-year-old Nosferatu vampire who just screeches <laughs> and doesn't make any noise. So if you, you're kind of like flirt with horror, but you're not quite wanting to get too scared and you want a pretty good laugh, What We Do in the Shadows is a good movie to start off with because there, there were a couple moments of like a little bit of creepiness. It's so fucking hilarious. Yeah, the scariest part of the movie is when they invited those two randos into their place to have dinner they chase that one guy who winds up being turned anyway they invite the virgins over the virgins over (laughs) which that's still like one of my absolute favorite fucking quotes from literally anything ever is when the filmmakers like asked him why do you drink virgin blood i think we drink virgin blood because it sounds cool i think of it like this if you're going to eat a sandwich You would just enjoy it more if you knew no one had f***ed it. (laughs) (laughs) Vladislav, which is like an 862-year-old, and he was known as Vladislav the Poker, and he's played by uh, Jermaine. Throughout the movie, they keep bringing up his nemesis, the Beast, and like they talk about how he used to be this all-powerful vampire, but then he had a fight with the Beast, and the Beast like impaled him on a fence, and he's been a weakened vampire ever since. And you come to find out the Beast is actually his ex-girlfriend, another vampire. But I love the way that anytime they bring up the Beast, they show all these 
old paintings of demons yeah. and like hellish <laughs> beasts monsters so you're expecting it to be like this awful thing but yeah the whole movie's fucking funny it plays on a lot of the tropes uh i loved how they introduced the werewolves i still hope they get that sequel spinoff movie off the ground yeah werewolves yeah yeah and it, it, it was a great setup to the tv show and at the time of this recording it was announced that the third season of the tv show on fxx is coming back this september so i'm pretty hyped for that because i love the first two seasons and uh actually viago and vladislav make appearances in the tv show as well so it all takes place in the same universe but the whole thing is fucking good like i said if you want something to have a laugh that kind of turns these tropes on their head like this is a good movie to do it with yeah it's definitely a good movie to watch with a group of people if you want to watch something funny that is still horror ish it would certainly be like a good double with an actual serious vampire movie as well too well and i love how like they keep this going in the tv show as well but i love how vampires are like so powerful but so fucking incompetent when it comes to like (laughs) anything like modern to the point where like for fun all they do is fuck around their house and then like like they go out and try and get into bars, but they have to be invited in and none of the bouncers invite them in. So they just get stuck going to the vampire bar, which looks like the shitty disco bar. It's all good. But yeah, I, I do hope they like put out that werewolf movie because that'd be pretty great. And then uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about, and actually this will be a peek behind the curtain again, listeners, but prior to Aaron and I taking our hiatus for my baby being born, we wanted to try and squeeze in one more recording after Prince of Darkness with Cullen Bunn. And we decided we wanted to try and watch Pontypool. Pontypool was put out back in like 2008, and it's a Canadian horror film directed by Bruce McDonald, right, Aaron? Yeah. Yeah, we kind of thought we would have a lot to say about it. Stars Stephen McCaddy is, I guess, the biggest name in in that, and his wife is in it, and a few other like random Canadian actors. And it's sort of a zombie movie, but like it has an interesting take on zombies. The premise is pretty cool, but like we kind of decided that we didn't really have a lot to say about this to like stretch over a, an entire episode. So I figure we could talk a little bit about it now before we get into the bay. What were like some your thoughts so i know i was curious to go back and watch it again because i wasn't huge on it the first time that i saw it which was pretty much right when it came out because i remember hearing about it online and hearing about it hitting the festival circuit and i was not the biggest fan of it then i get what it's doing it's clever i think a lot of the problem is because the premise is not really well defined outside of you literally having to go search for an explanation or watching it with a commentary track on or something like that it's not really well defined what's happening yet all the characters seem to instantly know what is going on and how to make things work i think another problem with the movie for it being all about language and words and spoken voice and that kind of thing and it's literally about a radio shock jock kind of guy who's going out on the airwaves to keep people calm throughout a disaster and that's kind of where we'll leave it as far as an explanation goes the audio mixing in that movie is terrible yeah i had to, <laughs> there were there were a few times where i had to rewatch because i was like wait what i even put the subtitles on at one point because i was like fuck this I can't, yeah like it's just 
so muddy and all the characters are speaking so fast and screaming and the music is mixed so high that like you can't tell what's happening half the time and and like you said I had to go back and turn on subtitles through most of the movie because I just had no idea what they were saying so much of the time so like that's frustrating because that just boils down to like bad filmmaking in my opinion yeah I like the idea that it's all set in one place cool the entire idea that it was originally designed to be a bbc radio show kind of in the vein of the orson wells war of the worlds thing where it was going to be a giant joke that this is happening but it's not actually happening kind of thing like okay cool that's neat so on that point you know what i am gonna spoil it because like a lot of the points that i make like i can't get around it so if you don't want to know the spoilers for Ponty pool you may want to skip ahead maybe even like 10 15 minutes because i do have some things to talk about with this movie The thing that I thought about was... And now you telling me that it was originally supposed to be a radio show, I feel like it should have either been totally just a radio show and hell even had like Stephen McCaddy on as the voice, or it should have been a little bit more of a, of a movie. And what I mean by that is I am all for it all just taking place in that radio station, but we only get one, maybe two zombie attacks, like actual infected in the building, maybe two. And one of them isn't even attacking anybody. It's just like them watching her through the recording studio glass. And I feel like this movie would have been way creepier and way better at explaining certain things if they showed some of the zombies uh, in action. So the big spoiler for this movie is that somehow the English language gets infected. And what I mean is I like when certain people say specific words, they start babbling and they start losing control of language and like forgetting how to talk. And then they just turn into fucking zombie, basically like 28 days later, zombie, like the running zombies until it kills them. They start tag people and infecting other people until they die. Like until like whatever virus is in this language kills them, which that's a great premise. Yeah. And you know, if there was a plague spread through language, you fucking know that out of touch, with reality like imagine Gal Gadot video with like Will Ferrell and Jimmy Fallon and all those other mega celebrities would have been the fucking cause I'm not gonna say that video made COVID worse but yeah like so but no for real like that's a great premise to the point where it was even maybe even kind of copied or at least paid homage by Metal Gear Solid 5 because there's a whole subplot in Metal Gear Solid 5 about an infection that can spread through language but yeah, I would have wanted I would wanted to see more infected attacking because the two or three times it happens are cool because they'll be walking down the hallway and then they'll be talking and then they'll just hear this third voice out of nowhere mimic a specific word they just said. Like, yeah, we need to get here and probably lock ourselves in the closet. Lock, lock, lock. Are you saying that? Lock, lock. And then this infected zombie that's just saying lock over again attacks them. Seeing more of that in action when we only saw it like once or twice would have made this a little easier, I feel like, to follow. But that's just me. Yeah, like, especially at the end. You know, you're not really sure, like, what is happening at the end? Are they being torpedoed by attack helicopters? You know that the building is surrounded and that they're kind of under siege by all these zombies as he's trying desperately 
to like get the last bit of, oh, I figured out a way to stop it. Let me blast that across the airwaves for anybody that's listening and hopefully we can prevent this, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But then it kind of ends with all this rumbling and all this noise and like kind of this countdown happening and you're not really sure what's going on. All of that. And then obviously the like after credits ending, which, you know, is also like a weird confusing thing is that's thrown I had to go to Wikipedia, yeah, figure out what the fuck they were trying to do there. And like, that's kind of like one of the biggest flaws of this movie to me is there's some just weird batshit dialogue choices to the point where like, not even when they're infected, like when they're just running the radio show and talking to each other. And then just with the, uh, the way the performances are, this movie can't decide if it wants to be comedic, serious, and or deeper at any point to the point where like the tone just shift is just so all over the damn place that I kind of wish it would have picked a lane and kind of going off that ending that you're talking about. I was reading about Bruce McDonald and one of his newer movies, Dreamland, which somehow is weirdly a spinoff of this movie. You and I talked about it because I watched it and it's bad well it has zero to do with this like in other yeah. uh, otherwise but like critics accuse that movie of like being scummy and trying to be like dream logic when and deeper than what they're actually showing and i did feel a little bit of that with Pontypool. not necessarily the scummy nature i don't think it was scummy but i think it had something it was trying to say but it just didn't execute it well enough again the premise was great some of the ideas i mean the dialogue between grant and sydney the two characters Stephen mccaddy and his wife was fantastic when it was on point it it was some of the best dialogue of any of the movies we've watched for this podcast, but like there wasn't enough of that. Yeah, I love stuff that's more impressionistic and esoteric, where you kind of have to infer this was not esoteric at all it was just like confusing yeah you kind of have to infer and imply in your own mind's eye what you're looking at and what the meaning of it is like you know i love david lynch i love tarkovsky i love any of that kind of you know art house stuff this movie is seemingly trying to have it both ways and i don't think that that works it doesn't work for me at least right this is a movie that's trying so hard to be in impressionistic and be about these bigger ideas but then like functionally doesn't work as a result yeah and this will be my last point but granted it's my biggest point this might be me reaching this might be a little bit of death of the author because i really don't think this was like the intention of tony burgess i think he was the writer or the original author or whatever but i feel like this movie at least did resonate with me on some level right now in 2021 far more than it would have if i had watched it originally when it came out in the festival circuit or anything back in 2008 2009 and here's why watching this at first i thought you know the zombie or rage virus or whatever you want to call it outbreak being spread through english language was really clever but you know unlikely but the more i thought about it i thought back on like the last five or six years with the rise of trumpism and where america's gone regardless of what your opinion of trump is what's undeniable is that during his rallies and his presidential speeches he spoke like absolute dookie nonsense up is down down is up prior to all this would be borderline insane rambling and people listened and people agreed and a good chunk of people and listened and agreed in fact probably close to half the country agreed it was almost like magical as like someone speaking in fucking tongues and now we have phrases like quote-unquote fake news which unto itself makes no sense and didn't exist five or six years ago but now it's like a quote-unquote infected our regular vernacular in the same way 
like of infecting language and is just accepted now as like another everyday phrase to this point where like we have just a ton of people thinking it's totally acceptable and justifiable now and people truly believe things proven over and over again to be untrue as fact or at least what they think is fact and the language they use and choose to listen to like is just it's batshit like you know it would have been laughable like less than five years ago even that's the true infection and I feel like this movie if it were to have come out now or like during the Trump years and was trying to go in that route it would have been something special or could have been something special and again this is death of the author I don't think this was the intention back in 2008 2009 but that's kind of why it resonated with me now that's why like I do think it's still worth checking out for like horror fans they should definitely check out Pontypool but I don't know what what were what are your thoughts to that that was just my own A to B connection that I made kind of watching this now yeah I mean, my thoughts are basically exactly yours. So, you know, I think that's part of the reason why we decided not to necessarily cover that movie because we just kind of both had the same exact opinion on it. And we also had the same gripes about it, but not enough to like really discuss in an entire episode. Yeah, because my like my whole connection to Trumpism and like fake news infecting our language, that was about as much as I could get out of that movie. And that wasn't even in the probably the intention of the director or writer. Yeah, because that movie came out years ago. So like you said, it totally has to be a let me completely negate the atmosphere that the movie came out in when it came out and let me just apply my like modern lens to this yeah and again those takes are all i got for it like yeah. I, I there's no way i could talk more about that movie i think too i was also really burned by watching dreamland out of curiosity because i happened to notice oh it's on amazon for free so let me watch this supposed spinoff follow-up to this movie and dear god God, that movie was the weirdest fucking mess. For a movie that has Stephen McHattie, Juliette Lewis, and Henry Rollins in it. Oh yeah, and by the way, there's vampires and all of this double identity bullshit with Stephen McCaddy where he's the character from Pontypool, but he's also then like a heroin addicted jazz trumpet player and a hitman. Like, it's a fucking mess of a movie. And I, I think I was just like especially pissed off from watching that, that it also kind of colored my rewatch <laughs> of Pontypool a little bit. Fuck you, Pontypool. <laughs> Lisa Howell, his wife, is also in both. I don't know what how big of a role she is in Dreamland, but she's basically the second main character in Pontypool. Yeah. I had to look all this up, but apparently, so again, spoiler for Pontypool at the very end. The very end is basically like apart from Dreamland or like the setup to Dreamland, that post credit scene. What they're doing, according to like what I looked up, is that Lisa and Stephen McCaddy's characters, the way they're avoiding getting infected, but still communicating with each other, is they're basically improving and making up these made-up storylines to communicate with each other, and Dreamland is like one of their made-up storylines that they act out with each other. Like, I guess they're trapped in the radio station under the rubble, and they're just passing time this way. I don't know, like, but it's like none of this is communicated to you in any way. Like, at least David Lynch, like, has esoteric signs and symbols and horseshit 
that he's throwing at you. Like, literally none of that is actually communicated to you. Well, again, a lot of directors like Lynch are just like, what do you think about this? This is all just shit that I pulled from my head, from my dream state, from my weird esoteric impressions of things, and it's up to you to decide what that's about to you, and there's no right or wrong answer. And this is a movie where, like, it's trying to do the same thing, but it's also telling you, no, there is an explicit answer, and you have to figure that out, and we're not going to tell you what that explicit answer is. And that's where it gets frustrating, is it's never impressionistic. There is always an actual answer to what you're looking at, but it's up to you to, like, figure that out, apparently, which is frustrating. I I think it's one thing to, like, go into a movie with some context, which we have certainly discussed before on other movies. You know, Under the Shadow is a good example of like, hey, kind of helps if you know a little bit of context about the Middle East before you go into this movie. But for something that's completely fictional, you shouldn't have to like do fucking research on the back end to like know what you were even looking at. That's frustrating. At least in my opinion, that is. And I can watch a lot of hooky-doo horseshit of just impressionistic, what do you think this is about? And I'm fine with that, yeah. Yeah, and the difference is I love discussing what do you think this meant when it comes to, like, Twin Peaks and David Lynch and even looking up and reading, like, people's takes on it and, like, analysis. And then there's this, where it's just like, no, this isn't that. It isn't what it thinks it is at all. Oh, because it tries to play it both ways. And you can't say, oh, this is going to be impressionistic and up to the viewer to figure out oh but there is an actual answer by the way we're just not going to tell you what it is that's frustrating yeah Yeah. but I think that's enough we'll spend on that again at the end of the day like at least for the horror community if like you are a horror fan and consider yourself to be a deep cuts horror fan go watch Pontypool there is enough there to see and to have that under your belt that you've seen it and you've taken something away from it and if you have a good take let us know let's talk about it because I'm very curious to know what other people think as well I am too like I, I I would actually love to hear from people who actually like this movie why they like it. Yeah. I am totally up for hearing people who disagree with us because I, I want to better understand. Again, there was a lot of stuff I did like about this movie and I want and I think the thing I was more frustrated about was that it had enough stuff that I did like that I wanted it to be better than what it was. Yeah, so same. So I think that's my main frustration. So it's not like a total throwaway movie. Like I'm glad I watched it. Hell, I would down the line maybe try and watch it again at some point, but it just wasn't what I wanted it to be my, for myself specifically but and you know look I'll, I'll be honest too this is something I struggle with because again like I think it's unfair for me to be like it's not what I wanted that's fine plenty of movies are not gonna give you what you want because they're not designed to be that yeah that's true but I think the problem is the premise is so clever like you said the execution is what kind of fucks it up And it might just be a case of the premise being too clever for its own good or too esoteric and unadaptable to the type of medium. Or even just there was a lot of budget restraint. Sure. That might have been a problem too. So like instead of having a bunch of infected, they could only like show bits and pieces of that instead of a zombie horde. Yeah. Because literally just because of money or something. So, you know, maybe we'll revisit that one later down the road. But that was, you know, I think for what 65 episodes in that being the first one that we kind of were just eh, i don't know 
about this now that we've like gone back to it. You know, I think that's pretty good. <laughs> I still uh, still pretty cold on Mothman prophecies as well, as well, and we were pretty cold to uh, the strangers. Sure, but we did so. episodes on those. I think yeah, that that's true. it's an issue of what do we talk about? How do we even yeah. do this? You know, and I mean, yeah, we're beyond talking like, about it now, but we've talked about it for maybe ten minutes. Yeah, beyond my like my big reach of comparing it to Trumpism and language he uses. You know, I, that's all I. That was the deepest I could get. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the movie that we're going to be covering for this episode, which is The Bay. So again, this is a 2012 found footage horror movie directed by Barry Levinson, and here's a little taste of it. Good morning, Marilyn. I am in Claridge, the host of our annual July 4th party. We're in the middle of some kind of viral outbreak. It's eating their organs, intestines, liver. It goes for kidneys. There's something wrong with the water. This stuff has chemical steroid in it. You don't just shut down the eastern seaboard without approval from a higher authority. As you can see here, we have these parasites. Oh my god. Isopods eating right through the fish's tongue. Something really wrong. Help me. It's eating them from the inside. There's bats. There's bodies everywhere. Do you hear that? What are you doing? Don't get up. Don't let me. Don't We could easily be looking at a new form evolve. I'm going to show the world what happened here. If you find this tape, just please get it out. Interesting swerve for him, I guess, as a director. Yeah, looking at his filmography, this is quite the swing. Yeah, but I mean, his entire career is kind of built on slight left turns like that. So, Barry Levinson, director of Diner, The Natural, Young Sherlock Holmes, which was a huge visual effects breakthrough movie at the time. Ten Men, Good Morning Vietnam, which is one of the movies that really put Robin Williams on the map. Rain Man, Bugsy, Toys, which is a fucking insano movie that I remember watching all the time when I was a child. Like, if we want to talk about horror movies, that movie is some wild, fucked up shit. Just anybody look up the trailer for Toys and tell me, like, how the fuck did that movie get made? It got a Razzie nomination for well, it. <laughs> he's probably got a handful of Razzies between stuff like Rain Man and Bugsy. Dude was nominated for a fuck ton of Golden Globes and Academies, though. Oh, too. sure, 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 sure. Yeah, he did Sleepers, Wagon the dog and weirdly enough sphere is maybe the last serious studio big budget movie that he directed which funny enough is about a group of people going to a station at the bottom of the ocean and oops there are bad things that happen down there so sphere is the movie i always think of whenever like that trope or premise is brought up because that's probably the first movie of that type i ever saw yeah and he had directed a few smaller movies since then he's done a lot of tv but this was kind of 
of A Weird Swerve that came out in 2012. I remember seeing this when it came out because it just kind of appeared on Netflix. And I was like, wait, what the fuck is this faux horror documentary directed by Barry Levinson? And it's like 80 minutes long. So I remember like putting it on and watching it just out of complete curiosity. Oh yeah, it's a quick watch, by the way. Yeah, and I remember having a decent amount of fun with it. You know, it, it was definitely kind of an interesting take on, okay, let's take all the basic zombie stuff we know and the basic found footage stuff we know, and let's kind of do a little bit more with it. And the entire environmental background to this movie is interesting because it's very much yeah. how, and this is like a completely weird comparison, but it's a lot how Dune was written. Frank Herbert originally was writing a, like, paper on environmentalism in the desert and all this other shit, and then, like, oops, now I'm actually just gonna write this giant epic sci-fi tome, right? With space worms and spice. Yeah. So, this was kind of the same thing where Barry Levinson was approached to direct an actual documentary about all the pollution issues in the Chesapeake Bay area, but while they were kind of deep into pre-production, they found out, oh, wait, Frontline's already done a huge, massive comprehensive documentary on this so why are we gonna like double up and do the same thing yeah so they made the swerve to turn it into a found footage horror movie which exactly i love that like i read somewhere that like according to levinson he he said like 80 percent of this movie is factual information yeah i think the only other 20 percent is the actual horror movie stuff but all the other stuff seems like this is actual problems in the chesapeake bay area or at yeah. least they were back in 2012 oh they still are i'm sure yeah. yeah. So as far as found footage horror goes, Aaron, I think you are actually probably a little less critical than even I am on found footage horror. I was curious about the Bay because, you know, we just are coming out of a pandemic now. And granted, the Bay isn't like a long year, multi-month pandemic, but it is very much about like things being overlooked and things becoming worse. And a lot of the reasons why they became worse is just out of sheer selfishness and like political power moves and everything else. So there is a lot to draw from this movie that we can look at in, in the lens post-COVID. But as far as like found footage goes, this is one of the better found footage movies I think I've seen, in my opinion, up until the last 10 minutes of the movie. And what I mean by that is the parts that did not work for me and they, they happened to be the last 10 minutes were the ones where it was hard for me to see how this could be included in the documentary. The way this movie sets it up is that everything you're watching is the documentary that this reporter is going to leak out with whoever she's speaking with over Skype. She's telling her story, but they're also like cutting in the footage that they've somehow like were able to obtain through all these various sources throughout this town. Yeah, because it's not like a lot of other found footage movies where the entire thing is, you know, all told through this one camera. It's one person's camera. It's one person's phone and you're just following everything through their lens. Like, this is multiple things like news sources. It's multiple, and like yeah. police dash cam footage and multiple people's cameras throughout the town and all this other stuff, yeah. Yeah, like found cameras in the water that washed up like weeks later. All the stuff that I thought was fascinating, like, because the actual movie takes place in 2009, but all this footage that they compiled makes it sound like this is three years later and this surviving reporter who witnessed a lot of this gathered all this information up to cut this like movie this documentary and she's leaking it out now to the public but the part that killed it for me was towards the end all the stuff involving stephanie 
and her husband. All that made sense with them, like, going to the town on the boat, like, because they're shooting their own, like, you know, home video footage. But then, like, all that shit in, like, the antique shop, it went from being, like, just found footage to me to just a straight-up horror movie. And that's what took me out of it, when it stopped being found footage, which is weird to say, because, like, normally I just prefer... Well, from the sense of, like, practically who is filming this right now, who is filming yeah. the two of them, is that... Okay, so it's just a suspension of disbelief kind of thing. Well, it, it, who's filming them, but also, too, even though scenes felt like they were being shot by like a movie studio at that point like they were fake yeah the staging and the acting and the dialogue yeah. and everything yeah and all these other footage like all this other footage felt real enough to be like okay this is found footage and that's what i appreciate about the movie as a whole because that's always the hang-up with found footage period is just why would you still be recording right now dot 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 exactly who would be filming this this perfectly oh lucky that you actually caught this exact thing on camera that you needed just then right now like good thing that you you know happened to catch these people speaking to each other on the camera and then you reviewed that footage to find out this crucial piece of plot information later dot, dot yeah dot. exactly that's the kind of stuff where you have to spend your disbelief with found footage and it gets frustrating with that type of movie and you're right 90 percent of this that is made up from all the different news sources is what makes this movie work because it's multiple sources yes, it's like 12 yes. fucking different sources and all the cameras around town and in my head i was trying to justify like those last 10 minutes of them in the antique shop and i'm like i guess there was a camera in the antique shop that could also perfectly record audio and then they also had their friend who was skyping in who didn't seem to do fucking anything while he's watching yeah. like an entire infection play out he just seemed like he skyped with them for three hours watching this dude slowly die whatever but i guess he was recording video and all this the whole time so that was my only complaint was those last 10 minutes however i will say it didn't totally ruin the movie for me like you know sometimes like I, we always joke about like the mass effect 3 ruining the entire franchise sure. yeah this didn't ruin the entire thing for me just because of what i liked about 90 percent of the rest of the movie coming from all these fucking sources and it was like she spent the last three years scratching and clawing to get every little bit of information that wasn't scrubbed by the government that got leaked out or whatever and compiling it all into like a cohesive documentary news piece basically to reveal everything that was all great as far as the actual horror in this movie i'll start off with the thing that like maybe wasn't intentional like the thing that wasn't the focus of the horror itself one of the things that actually sat with me the most was the stuff with stephanie and her husband and their newborn baby or their infant baby because hey i'm a father now july 4th is a right around the corner we're in the summertime and I was just picturing in my head like holy shit what if this is like me Savannah and my daughter riding into town not realizing what's going on and like we had been trying to like contact my parents the whole time or her parents and for some reason they're just not answering their phones but oh well it doesn't seem like that big of a deal and just kind of like the thought of what if that was like us and you know just like watching a young couple like go through some shit and what happens to the husband that hit a little home for me like as far as the horror goes but then you have the horror of just what if the people that you are trusting even with just your drinking water really aren't really on top of their shit or there's just so much government red tape bureaucratic red tape that they're doing the bare minimum that's required by them for the law they're trying to stay out of each other's lanes so much so that they overlook a lot of terrible shit yeah that all piles up on top of each other to the point where like you know for years it, it remains stable it's like a pile of trash that remains stable but then the second that like a little bit more is put on top the whole thing 
falls over and like causes all these problems and death and destruction. Yeah. It's a very much an environmental terror movie, I would say. Yeah. The general premise which as you take a big giant gulp of your water hey it's sparkle water i don't think this is infected (laughs) the general premise is it's this small town on the chesapeake bay most of their economy is driven by tourism which was kind of relatable for me too again because i lived in new orleans and yeah (laughs) most of the economy was tourism a lot of it had to do with water being around and uh this whole past year with covid that was you know so much of the you know we have to keep things open for the economy because so much of this depends on tourism and if people aren't coming blah 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 lockdown like hey dude mardi gras 2020 was a major infection event yeah so that's the stuff where the movie's highly relatable you know and there's a little bit of that jaws element too of course it's on the mayor fourth of july lie and the shitty mayor is the one that's like nah there's nothing to worry about don't worry about it uh but anyway all these people in this town start getting sick and they start puking blood and they start getting these crazy rashes and boils and then they start falling dead within hours like it's just like very quickly yeah and then you find out through all these various other sources like these climatologists that were there studying the bay and then this undercover news footage from somebody who's investigating these like chicken farms i love that the footage was on govleaks.org yeah was the website they use of just what's the most hollywood bullshit WikiLeaks like style govleaks.org all right yep you basically find out that the bay is now infested with these little critters called isopods which imagine like a little pill bug or like a little horseshoe crab like some kind of little water critter like that that gets into the water and people have been drinking these little critters and it's been getting into all the wildlife and little by little those things grow and they feed on you and then eventually they get big enough to where they uh, start eating all of your guts and like eat their way out of your body. And specifically this specific isopod in the movie here is called the tongue eating louse. It's a real isopod and it infects fish and it's a parasitic isopod. It gets into fish and what it does is it literally eats away the fish's tongue and then latches itself to the like the stub of where the fish's tongue started and becomes the fish's new tongue and just eats whatever the fish eats and i didn't research this any further i don't know if they lay eggs on the fish and the babies like eat the organs of the fish and kill it that way like kind of what happens in this movie yeah it depends on the exact type but yeah they're nasty little critters if you google image those you'll find some pretty uh gross images of all these little critters up in the inside of fish's mouths where they've you know burrowed in and made their home yeah they look like aliens like just imagine like basically a roly-poly like a pill bug what bigger has mandibles and shit and is coming yeah. out of a fish's mouth xenomorph style <laughs> and that's what you got before we scare anybody they are harmless to humans for now yeah and <laughs> in extreme circumstances they can grow up to two fucking feet long yeah that's some wild shit bigger than a horseshoe crab nasty i wonder if those are the ones that like get in sharks or something maybe i i don't know how one of those could grow to be fucking two feet long and just a a random fish yeah 
I don't know. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's the story, right? Is everybody is being eaten from within by these little crab critters that have been in the water that the entire town has been taken in. But of course, like you mentioned a second ago, there's lots of other exacerbating factors. Like you find out that the massive poultry farm has been dumping tons and tons and tons of chicken shit into the bay. And the chicken shit has chicken feed, which has all these other chemicals in it. You know, all these boost to make the chickens bigger and stronger and meatier. Cool, all that's now going into the bay. Yeah, I like how they reveal. So, like, from the website that's spliced in where it's the guy who, like, goes undercover on one of the chicken farms and is looking at, like, all the mounds of shit going into the bay, he says that, like, these steroids cause a baby chick to become a full-grown chicken in, like, a stupid fast amount of time. It does what would take Mother Nature weeks or even months to do within a matter of days or weeks or whatever. It's implied that because, like, it's so much steroid in these chemicals that, like, it causes whatever to become more aggressive and bigger and stronger, like you were saying. Yeah. So something that, like, the only other mild complaint, kind of speaking of, like, the critters, these isopods becoming big and attacking people and all that, the only other thing I was a little bit unsure about is exactly how they spread. So what made sense was if you drank water and you got them in you that way, like the babies or the larvae, that makes sense to me. If you get in the water and the larvae get in through your your mouth or your eyes or whatever, your nose, that makes sense to me. But then there were other moments where like it almost was implied that like if you were bit by one or if someone who was infected got blood on you or something, but then at the same time, like Donna, the main character, she gets blood on her at one point and drinks water. There's a scene where she's drinking water from a fountain at one point and she never gets infected. Granted, she says at the very end of the movie that like there were survivors in the town and they don't know exactly how they survived. It made it sound like the isopod larvae was just everywhere, like in all the pipes and all the water, the entire water system. So like there was no way you could get away from them, but they just, for whatever reason, there were survivors. So I guess you could go that route that like maybe some people were just somehow immune to them and had something in their bodies that could kill them off. I don't know. Like that stood out to me a little bit you're right there wasn't necessarily a scene where like i need to drink a bottle of water why did you just drink this tap water here it's perfect no i only drink bottled water there was never any of like that explanation of oh how somebody survived yeah because like even donna's cameraman died that doctor died and he was treating people so it was implied that like he died because isopods broke out of the dead bodies and like got into him somehow or i think the implication is just everybody in this town for months has been drinking water infected with the critters because that's the other thing you know on top of all the chicken shit from the chicken farm there is a desalination plant to scrub the water coming out of the bay and make it drinkable so people have been drinking bay water forever and the desalination plant doesn't necessarily catch the you know larval critters in that stage and i love that like okay those two things but then at one point one of the cdc people is just like um it looks like uh back in 2006 there was also a minor leak from a nearby uh nuclear factory yeah and then it just kind of like walks past that and everybody's yeah, like wait was, huh what yeah like maybe that has something to do the other thing too that and this may sound goofy but the movie does handle it relatively well there are two or three scenes where like someone gets in the water and literally a school of adult isopods swarm them like fucking piranhas yeah that sounds hooky and kind of dumb but like it makes sense in the context of this movie but like yeah i guess like between the like weird fucking
fucking chicken shit steroid and nuclear like waste yeah maybe that's what made them hyper violent and like big and all that because that was the other thing is like so kind of minor spoiler alert what's juxtaposed with all this footage and everything is we're following this young couple stephanie and her husband and their their infant coming into town for the weekend to attend the july 4th festivities and stay with their parents and they're they have no idea what happened in the town they actually kind of show up after everything's gone down which that was the original premise you know once they decided okay let's take this documentary research that we have and let's swerve this into an actual movie initially the premise was let's just have it about this couple that sails into this dead town and then oops turns out it's not actually dead just everybody's now like a zombie with isopods (laughs) yeah and they kind of swerved from that idea into the idea of a full faux documentary kind of thing and we we keep bringing up zombies it's not these aren't zombies it's just people like infected and no nobody comes back they all die yeah like <laughs> yeah like once they're infected it's literally just isopods eating their organs and eating them from the inside out and like they don't act like zombies but they just act like people who are basically getting eaten from the inside out yeah puking blood yeah. visible like wounds on the outside of their body that kind of thing yeah there's like there's zombie tropes to it sure but it's not a zombie movie and they don't act like you know zombies nobody's coming back from the dead yeah yeah something that like it took me a minute to think about too like with the plot hole of why is everybody else getting infected but then they're like donna was fine and they were saying the other people survived and all that with the husband of the two so like the minor spoiler is that like they get into town they find all this shit happened they find dead bodies they like go on to main street and there's literally like main street is littered with dead bodies blood coming out of them these isopods breaking out of people's skin and like eating them because their cell phones aren't working you find out through one of the police dash cams that the mayor had the cell phone towers taken down for information not to leak out but uh they like run into the antique shop and up lo and behold now the husband is showing signs of the infection and he winds up slowly dying to the point where like an isopod is as he's dying like an isopod is eating itself out of his neck and i was like how the fuck did he get infected there was a part earlier in the movie where like they're kind of flirting with each other and like she pushes him into the water as they're sailing yeah and i guess that was when he was infected he was infected that quick though just by going into the water again that's kind of where like was there an incubation period and the like all the ice pods decide to wake up at july 4th or was like this just the moment where like they infected the water supply like july 3rd july 4th and then it was a chain reaction that happened like that's kind of again my only like little minor plot hole gripe well i mean let's try to hand wave this away with some of the real life shit that inspired this movie think about all the weird instances that kind of get mentioned at the beginning of like oops Suddenly, this entire lake, all the fish died for reasons. Which, those were all real news reports, by the way. And it is always very strange. Oh, this one city, all of a sudden, everybody woke up one day and, like, tens of thousands of birds are just dead all over the ground because they had just fallen out of the fucking sky for reasons, dot, dot, dot. So, the whole idea of why did the isopods all suddenly, like, grow to be a certain size on this exact day? Activate kill mode, yeah. You know, like, (laughs) we can maybe hand wave that away by the same logic of just, eh, reasons. We don't really know, you know? That's a fair point because the documentary, it's implied 
slide that she put together starts with all those news bits of all these animals just suddenly dying all at once. And that's what yeah. exactly happens in this town. Suddenly all the isopods go into kill mode and kill all these people at the same time, basically. So by the way, uh, as far as horror newbies go, if you are interested in found footage movies, this might be a good one to start with. It was pretty creepy. As far as found footage movies go, it was pretty effective at certain points. There were a couple jump scares, FYI. Usually it involved like an isopod coming out of somebody. One of my favorite scares, which was also kind of like, okay, that was a little weird. Was that necessary? Was when Donna and her cameraman walk up to that dead body and the guy's eye moves and looks at her? Like yeah. that was a pretty creepy moment. Or when the isopods attack the divers, that was another good scare. But like the scariest shit to me was actually like the mundane stuff, like with those oceanographers, them studying and slowly piecing together that there's something wrong here. And the movie starts with the police finding their dead bodies washed up and just mysteriously eaten alive. Yeah. They hand wave it as, oh, it was bull shark attack. But like even in the footage, like the police are like, bull sharks don't eat people from the inside out through their stomachs. What the fuck did this to them? That was a really good creepy setup. But then just everything where like the recorded footage that they kind of splice throughout the movie of them slowly putting the pieces together. That It starts off with them like measuring the water in Chesapeake Bay being super toxic and unhealthy. And then they're finding that 40% of the Chesapeake Bay is lifeless. Yeah. The ground of the Chesapeake Bay used to be filled with all kinds of sea life and now it's all gone. And then like it progresses to them catching fish using like an endoscope, like something you would use for a colonoscopy or an endoscopy going into fish and seeing like all these fucking larvae infected the fish. All that buildup, what made it so creepy was that was the stuff that seemed the most real to me. Those oceanographers reports, just watching this creepiness of them kind of solving this puzzle until they are literally attacked by like killer isopod piranha school. That was the scariest shit in the movie to me. The other scary part though was everyone in the ER screaming and like dying and people falling over and puking blood everywhere and the doctors are so overstaffed and everything that people are just dying left and right and like they don't know what to do. Um, The stuff that made me laugh a little but also was just "Eh, yeah that sucks that this might be the case was the stuff with the CDC (laughs) of being like we don't know what the fuck it is and when they do figure it out A they call the White House B then they tell that doctor uh, whoever's infected's fucked get out of there sucks for them but nothing you can do yeah (laughs) like and then they like erase it they try and cover it up yeah which this is my beef with so many conspiracy theories in general and and I guess that's the premise of this movie is just when there are hundreds let alone thousands of people involved there's no way you're gonna keep everybody quiet there's no way that you're gonna keep everything like hushed up yeah make it disappear there's no amount of fucking money that you're gonna be able to pay out to like keep something that big under wraps yeah because the movie does hand wave that towards the end with donna being like there were actually a lot of survivors you know about maybe half the town or whatever survived for one reason or another they were told by the government to just keep quiet and they settled for like a certain amount of money yeah but they had literal bodies lining the streets that fucking er looked like a nightmare of just blood and dead bodies everywhere yeah children were killed because they were following like those two little girls who were also infected the entire time there's no goddamn way they would be able to cover this up in that way so that was also a little unbelievable but again that kind of goes into the like well we're still in a fictional horror movie so like you kind of just have to hand wave it but yeah i think if this actually happened in chesapeake bay right now there's absolutely no way the government could cover it up like that with that many people involved and a lot of what does make this movie effective i guess specifically if we're talking like our opinions you and i we both grew up 
on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And so we saw exactly how badly Katrina fucked the entire coastline. And oil spills, and oil baby. spills fucked the entire coastline. Thanks, BP. Yeah. And how, like, literal fucking, like, oil tar balls are showing up hundreds of miles away on, like, a completely different chunk of coastline, you know, different countries. Well, I even loved, like, some mayors, like, across the Gulf Coast in general were like, yeah, everything's fine, our beaches are great. And then oil would literally, like, roll up days later into the beach. It's like, nah, nah, man. (laughs) Yeah. So we saw that firsthand. Also seeing, you know, in New Orleans, the rampant city corruption that goes on and just constantly the amount of, oh no, trust us, we're totally doing XYZ to, you know, fix the water pumps so that we don't get flooded out. And we're totally doing XYZ to treat the water to make sure that the lead levels are nothing like Flint. And meanwhile, like, you know, everybody's talking about being magnetized after fucking COVID vaccines. Jesus Christ, it's a surprise that nobody doesn't just like fall out and sink to the bottom of the ocean every time because they're just so full of lead from drinking New Orleans water. Yeah. But, you know, that kind of stuff happens constantly. You know, every river, every body of water, every forest, all of our natural resources to one degree or another are constantly in danger of being exploited, tainted, or just generally, like, used up. You know, and that's what's frustrating is so much of what is in this, you can apply to, like, whatever part of the country you live in, and you know something has happened similar to this. Well, and that that was kind of the other thing, too, is... I was thinking like for a place like Chesapeake Bay, that's a big tourist attraction specifically for July 4th. The mayor was able to like really cover some shit up. Yeah, because the mayor is the one that like owns all the fucking poultry plants. Yeah, to the point where like when shit's hitting the fan, like the mayor is able to block even the governor declaring state of emergency and all this shit and even like disrupting the phone lines like of the city. And at first I was like, even in a town like Chesapeake Bay or like where he could probably have a lot of control, like how would a mayor be able to kind of do that like in, in, in such an event like that but like that shit kind of has happened it has happened in New Orleans I believe even where yeah. the mayor has blocked certain things before and I know it's happened in other places with natural disasters and everything so I guess that part is also still technically believable i wasn't sure like how much power does a mayor actually wield in events like that well i mean again if we're gonna apply this to covid look at the amount of states and cities true. that have been like fucking true yeah fuck you're right. you, we're not wearing masks no masks yeah. in our goddamn town we're just gonna let this run rampant and it's just gonna have yeah, to be well, okay like you just answered my question so there you go yeah i think that's the answer to everything that we think about in this movie is but what would actually happen in real life oh hold on we have an answer now. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. And thankfully it was, well, no, I'm not going to say that. Never mind. I was about to say, thankfully it was COVID and not isopods that kill you in four hours <laughs> because COVID was pretty fucking terrible too. But yeah. um, at least it wasn't a guaranteed death sentence like it is in this movie, I suppose. But yeah, some other stuff too. Like I wanted to ask you, I recognize Kristen Connolly as yeah. Stephanie, like the, the wife. And then the other actress who has done a bit was a uh, Kether Donahue who plays Donna, the, the reporter. 
reporter. There's a lot of low-key TV actors in this that you have seen. Yeah, because I didn't really recognize anyone else. Realize that's who it was. Yeah, Chris and Connolly is the only person that I recognized in this when I saw it because I had just seen her in Cabin in the Woods that same year. Right. Another weird situation of this movie got made three, four years before and like got shelved. But Chris and Connolly was in The Happening, Revolutionary Road, Cabin in the Woods. Oh, The Happening. The Happening with the. You mean to tell me the trees are like trying to kill us, bro? You mean to tell me we gotta like run away from the wind, bro? Mark, Marky Mark Wahlberg, his choice for like raising the pitch of his voice and being like, I'm just a science teacher. It's just like one of the worst like acting decisions I think I've ever seen. We'll have to do the happening as a giggle flicks or something. God, that fucking movie. Um, I had a great time seeing that. Like as a weird aside, I had a great time seeing that because a bunch of us from work went. We got drunk fucking loaded at the Mexican restaurant that was like across the parking lot from the movie theater and we went and saw the happening on like opening night with a packed house and everybody turned on that movie within the first five minutes and it was just a fucking heckle fest the entire time it was great we were passing an entire bottle of vodka up and down the aisle and uh (laughs) had a good time Anyway, so yeah, Chris and Connolly is the only person that I recognized from this at the time. Kether Donahue that plays the reporter Donna, she has a huge chunk of her career in voice acting, apparently. Yeah, so I, I'm glad you brought that up because there's even a part where she says when like she's doing the Skype call with whoever on when they're talking about leaking this footage and everything, she's just like, oh, you want me to like talk through the like footage and everything? Okay, well, you could have gotten a voice actor or something to do this. And I yeah. was like, waka waka, wink at the camera, because she is a voice actress. Yeah. She was also in the first two Pitch Perfect movies, The Disaster Artist, and she's playing fucking bird girl in this new bird girl cartoon that adult swim is doing that's like a spin-off, yeah, spin-off of from harvey harvey birdman yeah and it's actually pretty fucking good i watched the first couple episodes of it the mayor who is all concerned about keeping his town open for you know the sake of the economy you know we've heard that a lot this past year his name is mayor Stockman, which that seems like kind of an on-the-nose name for a fucking mayor who's concerned about the economy <laughs> but yeah that's frank deal I am Jonathan Fixit. I am a plumber. Yeah, I'm totally worried about the economy. My name is Henry Big Bucks. <laughs> yeah, Frank Deal's a Southern actor who's done a shit ton of TV over the years. He was also in Nonstop, Eighth Grade, and most recently The Outsider, which I talked about on a previous episode. They're kind of three. Let's just call them the three main characters because this movie does follow a lot of different people. Um, you're also following these two police officers that are responding to calls across the city. Oh man, that one of the creepiest moments of the movie. I'm glad you brought up the police officers. And you don't even see what's happening. You all hear it through audio. What was caught on their uh, their speakers that's on their police uniform. Just the audio of it. When they enter that house, like the first guy goes and enters that house. Nothing's happening. And then the second guy hears his gun go off and he goes in and just all that audio sounds fucking terrifying. Yeah. So you're following them. You're following a couple of different, you know, there's some kids that you're following. There's two teenagers that kind of go off on a boat by themselves to you know have some together time and they get attacked there's another little girl who's facetiming one of her friends from the hospital that was so sad because like their conversation ends with being like oh man my tongue fucking hurts why does my tongue hurt so much yeah Yeah, well you're getting isopotted so you know you're following this giant chunk of characters and i think that's you know 
know, one thing that does work is you're getting little bits of all these different stories, but where I think it kind of falters is sometimes you have non-actors, sometimes you have actors. The quality of how true to life does this performance feel? How much of this feels like a TV actor trying to play real and keep it toned down? Like sometimes those things juxtapose against each other in ways where it makes the performances feel overly heightened. But I think overall it it works better than I have seen in a lot of other instances. Yeah, and that goes hand in hand with just what works with the found footage nature of this movie is that it's coming from multiple sources and it's being portrayed like a documentary, like a revelatory, like think piece or news piece documentary that's going to like show the world yeah. what actually happened. As for like, you know, some of the technical stuff, I guess they shot the movie in the Carolinas, $2 million budget. So really, really simple. About a third of the footage was apparently shot by the actual cast because of like the nature of it being found footage. They right. literally just let the cast shoot a lot of stuff like on phones, on cameras. That's cool. And they kind of compiled like that. all that. So about a third of the actual footage you see was shot by the actual cast and not necessarily like a DP. You know, so I mean, in, in terms of like the style of this movie, I think, like I said a second ago, all that works. You know, having it kind of cobbled together from multiple sources instead of it just being this one subjective eye that you're watching everything through the entire time and you're running into those roadblocks of like, okay, this is impractical. You wouldn't be shooting right now. Why is the camera still rolling? Oh, yeah. you know, perfect timing, blah, blah, blah. I think it's more effective because you are getting it from all those different sources. For being waterlogged, that camera footage of the two teenagers was pretty well intact. Yeah. Backing up for a second, you said that they shot this in the Carolinas, most of it. Yeah. And the Chesapeake Bay is... Maryland. In Maryland, right? Yeah. Disappointing. I thought most of this movie was also actually in the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, I'm not sure why other than like, you know, tax credits in yeah. being cheaper. Like, I'm sure there was probably something like that involved. And that leads to my, my next question is like, was there any bit of this movie that was the original intended documentary footage that they decided to like bring in? There could be because there's a lot of real news footage mixed yeah. in with what we're looking at. Yeah. It's possible that some of what we're seeing was, you know, originally intended for the documentary that they were going to shoot. But that said, any movie that has a group vomiting scene instantly jumps up at least half a point for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because that, that scene where it was just like, oh yeah, here's the crab eating contest and then little by little everybody is just violently throwing up. Yeah, so like I want to know like did they get infected previously or like were the water they were drinking infect them or were the isopods in the crab that they yeah. ate? They That's like, like the one scene that is trying to come off as horror but I was laughing my ass off it, even that was the other day funny. like rewatching it was just having those like stand by me mafia just group vomit you know everybody just puking with the SNL <laughs> fake vomit hose up their sleeve and just spraying it everywhere. The scene though that did work that was kind of like what that scene was also trying to do was the one where it was like the woman who got dunked in the water earlier like in the dunk tank her just now being full infected like wandering, wandering around, the streets yeah. screaming for help and where's her husband and she's covered in all the boils. That was an effective horror reveal like an infection's happening. Well it also again yeah let's touch on COVID just showing this woman's screaming like please someone help me take me to the hospital why the fuck is everybody staring at me like and they're all like backing away from her yeah and everybody just being like uh no thanks i'm going to go this way let's you know i'm gonna step around this like no i'm not actually gonna help you no i'm just gonna think 
about myself and not try to, you know, help anybody else. So it very much kind of the same vibes there. Yeah. But definitely like a fun time for it being pretty short. And, uh, you know, I like that the movie is definitely saying exactly what it wants to say. <laughs> Unlike Pontypool. <laughs> yeah. The movie's saying exactly what it wants to say, which is we human beings are causing a lot of massive problems to our environment directly. And we're constantly poking the bear. Totally. Begging for like a major disaster. You know, we obviously don't know the 100% truth about how, when, where, what COVID is, etc. Like, we don't know that yet. I'm sure a lot of that will come out in time. Whether it was a natural thing, whether it was man-made, whether it was purposeful, whatever. Like, we don't know any of those answers yet. Well, and the scary part on that note is regardless if it was man-made or natural or whatever, the spread of it was made far, far worse because of our own attitudes. Absolutely. And also just pointing out how completely ill-prepared we were for something like this. Well, not even just ill-prepared, but like even just the specific type of leadership that would be in power when something like that happens. Because, you know, like we, you and I, okay, like let's stop being around the bush. You and I have made it pretty clear multiple times on this show. And I'm sorry if you're, you're a listener who disagrees with us. Yeah, we're pretty progressive in our views, and Trump was a maniac. Trump was a fucking psychopath. And, like, all he had to do, and I, I'm convinced thousands of lives could have been saved, if all he did was keep his mouth shut about his own personal opinions and just say, hey, you should mask up. Just wear your mask. Let's get through this. That's all he had to fucking do instead of calling it a democratic hoax and saying like, yeah, you should wear your mask, but I'm not going to wear a mask. I don't think that'll help. And all this dumb shit that he said to like counteract everything like the CDC and all these actual experts were saying. So it's also just what if we have another leadership like that when another big disaster happens? Yeah. Or like the mayor of Jaws, mayor in this movie of just they're so selfish about their own power, their own approval ratings, whatever they may be, that they like wait too long. Yeah, totally. Where this movie is most effective is just reiterating the fact that with every decision that is made due to money, due to power, due to trying to maintain some level of status quo instead of accepting the reality that we are in, and having to live with that and adjust to that and actually work to like proactively counteract some of that and roll things back we decide to just fuck it and like keep going no matter the cost and then you know eventually we pay the price and it's not like this is anything new it's not like this is suddenly a like post 2000 thing that we're looking at you know i i talked episodes and episodes ago about Prophecy, which was a movie from the 70s about, you know, this giant mutant bear that had been, like, radiated by chemicals from a lumber yard that was leaking things off into the river. Is that Pizza Bear? That's Pizza Bear. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We need to do that movie someday. You know, that movie's from the 70s. You know, none of this is anything new that we're talking about. It's just all the result of hypercapitalism, deregulation, and just not understanding the value of the resources that we have and seeing everything as 
dollar signs and just seeing everything as something to be exploited and something to be used and something to be turned into profit instead of understanding that there is a delicate balance and once you kind of topple that then things go poorly whether it's oops we accidentally created a bunch of crustaceans in the bay that are now eating people to oops turns out if we don't just follow basic health and hygiene things like covering your fucking mouth when there's an airborne illness out there that you know tens of thousands of millions of people are going to die. Have fun. So, you know, it's it's definitely not anything new, but I think the movie does a great job of being very specific and deliberate about what it is trying to say without ever really feeling preachy about it. And that's kind of one of the main things I will give this movie is it never really feels preachy preachy yeah like that's something i didn't even really think about it never did kind of beat me over the head with what i was trying to say like it was pretty it's pretty straightforward with what it was portraying there was still enough of like i wouldn't say camp but enough of that horror factor to it that like it still also felt like a pretty effective horror movie yeah yeah it's a good shot of oh gee nobody wants to sit through a boring environmental documentary nobody actually wants to like pay attention and listen to all this crucial information being thrown at you hold on, let's have a couple of scenes of people throwing up blood and some, like, scares. Okay, cool, now you're totally wrapped in. And a crustacean eating itself out of someone's neck, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think it's very effective in that regard, where it's doing exactly what it sets out to do, it's saying exactly what it means to say, but it never feels preachy. And so you never really turn on the movie in that regard. You know, as important as an inconvenient truth was at the time that it came out that movie's preachy as fuck al gore is preachy as fuck right like it's it's hard and it's frustrating and it's eye rolly to like take that movie seriously because it's so preachy as fuck even though everything in that movie is very important you know and it's all stuff that we should have been paying attention to for the last 20 years it's still kind of hard to take it seriously when it's that preachy right and i think this movie does a good job of not being that not quite from the same time this was this was a few years before but i remember watching the documentary gasland that was specifically about fracking and this was kind of right when fracking was kind of really blowing up I mean, fracking had been around for a while. Yeah. Oh, man. This was, this was the end of the Bush years, the end of Halliburton, the end of Cheney just, like, really shoving fracking to the forefront because they were the ones in power. They were the ones that could make that happen. They were the ones that could shove it through. And so fracking was just going wild, spreading all across the country. And this documentary was literally just kind of following, like, hey, this is a town that's been doing fracking for years this is what the town looks like now this is how fucked the town is it can't sustain people it can't sustain animals everybody's fucking like stock animals died because of all the like toxins in the water and in the ground the ground is poison the water can catch on fire you know a guy like literally like set fire to the tap water coming out of his fucking sink right yeah i remember seeing that scene somewhere so you talking about all that just makes me think of fucking Danny DeVito and uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia when they make their sequels to Lethal Weapon <laughs> it's just like even sharks need clean drinking water yep <laughs> 
I thought about that that line, by the way, throughout all of the Bay, by the way, because that yeah. was pretty much like... <laughs> um, but yeah, like there's there's been lots of eco-focused horror movies out there. I mean, pretty much every like... Every other, I'll, I'll say, animal attack movie is like, oh, oops, there was a leak at this chemical factory, and now these spiders are, like, 50 feet tall. Oops, this logging company, like, spread some kind of, you know, like, aerosol, and now all these birds are attacking people. There's just so many of those kinds of movies. Larry Fessenden's The Last Winter is another good one. There's so many that have been addressing this stuff for years. But, like, that's a good point, because a lot of them are very campy. Yeah. That's one of those things that, like, this movie is first a found footage horror movie and second a creature attack movie because at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's an infection creature attack movie. And at least not to my knowledge, you might know of it, of something else, but no other movie ever could say that they have giant sea pill bugs that go into people (laughs) and eat them from the inside out. Because, yes, if you think about it that way, that premise is very campy. But, like, again, the way in the context of this movie, it, it somehow fucking works. I think because the movie is very slowly paced, not slowly paced, but paced well in the reveal of the crustaceans being like the culprit. Yeah. Because it does very much start off just this mysterious virus that it does almost start off like a zombie movie virus, but then it goes into that route. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's definitely worth a watch. I know right now it is streaming on HBO Max, but it is. That's where I saw it. Yeah. On and off pretty much every streaming service that I can think of. You know, I didn't check to see like where it's currently available now but i know i originally saw it on netflix it's been on amazon and tubi tv frequently so this is one that you should be able to watch very easily like we mentioned it's short it's like all of 80 minutes so it's definitely a breeze to run through so it's it's definitely worth checking out all said and done is it the absolute scariest thing in the world Mm, no but like is it effective in what it's trying to do I'd say yes, and it's certainly taking something that is relatable and making you actually kind of consider a lot of what you might be living through in your part of the world, in your part of the country, you know, whatever current environmental situation might be in your area, and you kind of have to stop and think, hey, what is actually going on here? What could actually be affecting us? Is XYZ potentially going to lead to this thing down the road? What can we do to possibly get ahead of this like what is the root cause of it so it does make you at least think and consider kind of your real life situation and where you might be and i think that's at least worth the brain exercise even though it is a little bit anxiety inducing yeah so uh fix our shit otherwise we're gonna get crustaceans eating us from the inside out yeah when you drink tap water yeah crustaceans that are made from like lead mercury and you know chicken shit and liquefy like terminators and reappear yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, in our case, yeah, yep. that's that's true. So, cool, cool. Any final thoughts? Nope, pretty good. We've done enough episodes now where I, I can't remember, but was this our first found footage? It's our first found footage movie since Creep, for sure. Okay, well, not a bad second one. Creep was pretty good, too. I do hope we kind of keep that going because, like I said, uh, I am not the biggest fan of found footage always, but those two were pretty good. And I think there's some other ones that are on our list and for the future episodes that look intriguing. I know that um, VP Morris, when she was on, 
mentioned another found footage movie that I want us to get around doing as well. Yeah, totally. All right, cool, cool. Well, uh, I guess that is going to be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast with your boy Aaron, the movie monster boy, and Derek, my cowardly co-host. You can find us on all the podcatchers at this point, um, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Podbean, etc. Our socials are at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. Please check us out there. We've also got our year-round playlist on Spotify that's available if you want to check out some horror-inspired or kind of vibed tunes. Link to that is pinned at the top of our Twitter. As always, big thanks to my little brother Jesse Mansfield, aka Party Gator, for the bumps at the beginning and end of every episode. Um, you can find more of his stuff at Bandcamp under Party Gator, Opossums, and he's got several other associated acts linked off there. Beyond that, we are hopefully going to be kind of back in the groove of recording again. Derek has a move coming up, so we might end up throwing a few in the can before that. But hopefully, you know, we are going to be kind of back on a roll from there. Yep, yep. And get some more cool guests on in the near future. So, any, uh, final words there well i did just drink spark water it was actually a new brand i forgot to tell you about this earlier aaron it was a sally's special surprise sparkle water you know i think i saw something in the news about like people getting weird boils and stuff and puking blood but i don't know i think that's a bunch of bullshit oh oh god Uh, (laughs) sallyitis